Take it from me, crunching numbers in a lab and sifting through mountains of papers can only get you so far. We've got another pair of waders if you want some. I would love to if you've What's got extra. Sometimes you have to get your hands dirty to seek answers. Let us know if you need the rescue. <laughs> Which is exactly what our producer, Sean Holden, is doing. It's a little boggy here. Traversing the back creeks and bogs of southern Australia. Just arrived in Warburton, sort of a small town. Why get his feet wet? And why am I here? So maybe tucked away in this small little community is the cure for chronic pain. Pain. Few things in this world are ever certain. But experiencing pain certainly is. All right, just before we hop off, Josh, can you quickly tell me what are we going out to do? Yet, hidden under the brush, upstream, an elusive critter might be packing the key to make this fact of life a footnote. So, we're, gonna, we're doing a platypus survey tonight, so we've got Matt set out. All right, we'll just hop into the river, looking for some platypus. You're listening to Nice Genes, a podcast brought to you by Genome British Columbia. I'm your host, Dr. Kaylee Byers, collector and curator of oddball critter stories with a genomics hook. Nice jeans, here we go. Do you remember the most pain you've been in? Physical pain. Uh, when I crashed my bicycle. Ski racing, breaking my legs. Oh, I fell off a moped. Uh, I broke my ankle. Yeah, rugby is brutal. Yeah, yeah. You probably do. We remember pain. If we're lucky, it passes. But that's not always the case. Yes, I broke my back in February, so <laughs> recently, February. yeah. Oh my gosh, wow. Ski accident. That was definitely painful. <laughs> we may assume that a run-in with pain like this is inevitable. Roughly one in five adults experience chronic pain. But today, we're asking whether we might be able to relegate this type of pain to our past. Step one, let's see if we can go find Josh. Fascinatingly, the solution may be found in one unique and one of my all-time favorite critters. One that looks cute and cuddly, but is notoriously elusive and feisty with a powerful punch. Where we go to from here? So, I'm joined by our producer, Sean Holden, who's going to share his journey to find the paradigmatic... Platypus. Hello, hello. Did I say that right? Yeah, I Paradigmatic? think so. I think you said it right. Wow, good. Good for <laughs> me. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. So, uh, Sean, what are we hearing right now? Well, that's me in Warburton, Australia, and I'm there to meet some expert trackers of platypus. That's pretty cool. Can you introduce us to the team? Yeah, so we've got Lisa. I'm Lisa. She's an invertebrate biologist. Then there's Alex, another conservationist, and I swear he has a sixth sense for the creepy crawlies hiding in the dark. It's one of the wolf spider things. Dang, I didn't even spot this. And lastly, we have senior ecologist Josh Griffiths. Nice to meet you. Josh. The most experienced platypus tracker among us. Assess how the population's going and collect a few biological samples, some DNA. and. Neat. Okay. So what's with the platypus quest? Okay, so there are many reasons, but the basic one is platypuses, despite looking like a lovable mistake of nature, (laughs) have a myriad of abilities. They're mammals. They lay eggs, have a flat tail like a beaver for swimming and burrowing, and are adorned with a handsome bill like a duck. 
but perhaps one of their more unusual appendages are the spurs that the males of the species possess. Uh, so male platypus have a, um, it's a curved it spike on their, on their inside of their rear legs. And packed in those spurs um, like is a venom, pretty potent too. And the venom causes massive swelling and excruciating pain, and it lasts for weeks. If you have an unfortunate run-in with the business side of their spur, not even morphine can stop the pain. So the only way they stop the pain is um, they'll put nerve blockers in and basically kill your limb for a period of time. And, um, but that is exactly why I'm here. Researchers believe that if they can get their hands on enough venom, they could potentially synthesize a cocktail that would help us understand pain and halt it in its tracks. Whoa. I mean, that's not news to me. I feel like the past couple of months working on the show together, we've been pretty pumped uh, to talk to platypus. <laughs> platypus is out of the bag now. <laughs> so maybe we can quantify this for folks. How does genomics affect how we experience pain? Yeah, so it's actually baked into our DNA. The past few decades of research have shown that many genes affect how we experience pain. Our pain channels might look different from one person to the other, and even our environment plays a role. Studies on twins showed that 50% of how you experience pain is inherited in your genes. We share this experience, but it also varies. Simply put, your genes can make a little bump to the shin feel like a oopsie-daisy, how silly of me, to a... I can't... You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, you don't know. I've, uh, yeah, I've been there. Uh, but I mean, okay, we need pain. Right. Life doesn't come with warning lights. And so pain, it's sort of the brake light for the future. So you can avoid, you know, bumping your shin again. Yeah. But I mean, I guess there comes a point when the pain becomes too much to handle. Mm. So if we're able to put a stopper on pain, wouldn't we like to know? Yeah. I mean, I'm pro knowledge generally. So uh, well, let's see how this plays out. Which is why I shared our platypus tale with someone who's interested to see if we can put a plug on pain. Just like platypus, like the animal? Like, what are we, <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> Kaylee and I spoke with Jackie okay. Gonzalez. Are you experiencing pain right now? And, and where is it on that, that one to ten scale? So, so today, yes, I am in pain. Um, I'm on a roughly four to a five today on the pain scale. And um, my hands are actually flaring really badly today. So my hands are bright red. Jackie has a rare condition called erythromyalgia, but it's more colloquially known as man-on-fire syndrome. So most of the time, I just call it EM for short. I've put my hand on a heater is literally what this feels like, combined with deep muscular aches that you would get like when you have the flu. So imagine having a super, super warm, hot sock on, and then those deep muscular aches. Day-to-day -day living with the condition is a challenge. It's affected every aspect of my life. Hello. So I'm at one of my favorite coffee shops, and my feet are starting to burn. This pain is constant. So I am going to switch on my fan. So I'm in the middle of working and I'm losing all of my concentration because my feet are starting to flare. So I'm going to turn my fan on now. And so my I'm feet are burning. I have a little gel slash like ice freezer that I grab my little ice things oh, for my feet. So I'm trying to get to sleep, but that's not happening because my... I'm in the freezer here and um, 
grab my little ice pack. Try to get back to sleep. Turn on my fan. I'm right here with my <laughs> with my cute doggy that has decided to join me a bit, and I've just had to kind of shut everything off. And yeah, pretty much going to get my day started. Um, good morning, everyone. Jackie, can you take us through the journey of finding out that you had erythromyalgia? Yes. So sit down, get comfortable. It's a little bit of a journey for sure. So my mom noticed that I was sitting down a lot and that I was rubbing my feet when I was around six years old. And the doctors couldn't really find anything wrong. And so they were like, well, she just wants attention. So my mom was like, okay, but like, I know my daughter. Something's really, really wrong. There was just weird symptoms, potential surgeries, treatments. I had a cabinet full of medication growing up as a kid. It was, it was just very defeating going to the doctors every six months. I think I missed most of school. So then we went to a chiropractor one day when I was around 12 and he looked at my feet and he's like, your feet look a little red. The, the chiropractor was like, oh, have you heard of something called Mitchell's disease? And my mom's like, what are you talking about? And he took a vial of warm water and he put it on my hand. And he's like, do you feel that? I said, yes. Then he was like, okay. And then he put it on my foot. And he was like, do you feel that? And I was like, no. Whoa, what is this? He gave us all this, all these papers. And there's something called the Erythromyalgia Association. So we went and my mom found all the doctors, all the research, everything that was happening. And the main people that were diagnosing this was up in Mayo Clinic, up in Rochester. So we got a script to go up there to visit all the doctors that I had read all this research about. When we got up there, it was a week of hell. Being 13 and going up and being poked and prodded again. I've given so much blood in my life, but I was to the point of, if anybody else cannot go through all the crap that I went through, yes, I want to help. Look at my symptoms, look at my feet, look at my blood work, whatever needs to happen. And they put you in a human-sized oven and they see if you can sweat. This will induce a horrible flare-up that will last weeks. Once we finished all of the tests that they wanted done, it was concluded that I had primary erythromyalgia, which means it's idiopathic and it's not secondary to any other condition. Um, hearing that as getting close to my teens and being in high school was really rough. Um, could you share, is there a genetic component for EM in your case? So in my case, it could potentially be a spontaneous mutation. But for many people with erythromyalgia, the gene that's mutated for them is the SCN9A gene. The SCN9A gene gives our body a very specific blueprint. Those biological instructions produce sodium channels in our nerve cells, which are used to communicate sensations in our brain, including pain. So the problem is the sodium channel stays open longer than normal, and that results in more pain. And you mentioned the diagnosis like in your early teens as being rough. Like, What does it mean for you to have a diagnosis? It was a very mixed feeling 
because on one hand, I was so excited to finally have a name for something that had plagued me my entire life. Being told I wasn't crazy for feeling the things that I was feeling, that was very, it was like a weight was lifted off my shoulders. But on the other hand, it was a chronic condition with no real treatment and no real cure. Yes, I reckon. I'll take my bum bag. So, platypus. Mm -hmm. Josh, the team, and I began by going to five different sites along the creek. Infamous platypus hunting grounds. We're in their territory now. Earlier in the day, the team set up massive nets along waterways, which funnel anything coming up and downstream. Platypuses are nocturnal hunters, so they paddle out at night looking for tasty bugs to eat. And if we're lucky, we might catch one and grab a vial of that precious, precious venom. All right, Josh, first <laughs> net check. Uh, what did we find? Anything? Uh, lots of leaves and twigs filling up the nets, um, but no platypus, unfortunately. Other than um, finding the platypus, the nets, how did you even find this crew to do this very specific task? Oh, you know, it's just a popular pastime here in Australia. I already, I, you know, I always assume that. I always just assume that this was what Australians did in their free time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I first heard about them from a mutual contact. Remember Carolyn Hogg from season two? Oh, yeah. I cannot work. That's fair. Well, so she nice introduced me to a scientist named Adele Gonzalez. Um, and I'm a PhD student with the Australasian Wildlife Genomics Group at the University of Sydney in Australia. She's taken a special interest in our slippery, venomous critter. The first specimen around 1900 was sent to England and they thought it was a hoax. <laughs> they thought someone had sewed um, a duck's beak onto some other animal and didn't believe it. <laughs> Very funny. It's like... Oh, someone took like a marmot and they, they put it. They were like taxidermy hoax. This isn't a real animal. How could it possibly be? It's so strange. How did you first become interested in the platypus? So in high school, everyone does work experience, and I managed to get um, work experience at a zoo that's in Sydney, and I was put in the Australian Mammal Division. So I got to spend a day working with them and kind of just got fascinated with how strange they are. There's genuinely not a feature that they have that's not strange. <laughs> um, they're egg-laying mammals, for one. They don't have uh, traditional stomachs, so they have a little pouch that absorbs nutrients, but they don't actually have any digestive function oh, in it. Wild. They don't have adult teeth. They use electroreception like sharks to find their prey. They're biofluorescent, so under a UV light, yeah, their fur is blue-green, which is just, honestly, at this point, what are you doing? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> It's a pretty weird animal, including its venom. Yeah, so that is my favorite fun fact. A lot of the natural world has proteins and components that have been tailored for particular purposes that we just don't know about yet. If it helps with the pain and affects the pain in a particular way in an animal, there is a a high chance or a possible chance that it could do something for pain in humans as well. So how can we flip the platypus's painful brew into a powerful medicine? You're listening to Nice Genes, a podcast all about the fascinating world of genomics and the evolving science behind it, brought to you by Genome British Columbia. I'm Dr. Kaylee Byers, your host, 
and we want to get more people to listen to the genomic stories that are shaping our world. So if you like nice genes, hit follow on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Spur on your friends by sharing this episode. All right. What in the... It's covered in, like, leeches or something. Ah, yeah, they're uh, disgusting. Adele Gonzalez has a stake in the success of Josh and Sean's trip. Looks like we caught ourselves a crayfish. How about... Do you try and extract the venom from a platypus? <laughs> she wants to unlock the genomic secrets behind the peculiarity of platypus venom. I've tried a few different ways without a lot of success. However, platypuses are notoriously elusive. So the males are getting quite aggressive and they produce a lot of venom. So sometimes when you And then them, you to milk their venom. Otherwise, I can try to sort of massage their venom gland and see if it'll help them exude a little bit. But uh, I haven't had a lot of success. Let's just say it's uh, harder than milking a cow. So this is one of the more annoying aspects of the job. So males use it against other male platypuses as opposed to a traditional venom functionality, which is usually predation or defense, um, which makes their venom system super interesting and kind of a rare reason behind why they have this trait. Luckily for us, it's never killed a person. Um, and for some of the symptoms are like excruciating pain, sight numbness, lots of sensitivity to pain and pressure, loss of mobility. I think a man who once got envenomated didn't have proper mobility for months. So very weird symptoms for a very weird animal. All right. The trusty crew is off. Yeah. Okay. How many fingers have you got at the moment? <laughs> right, right them out. If they can catch one of these real-world Pokemon, Adele might be able to sequence the molecules and particles that make up their venom. Um, so one of our main reasons for looking into platypus venom is to figure out what each of these components actually do in the venom because that has never properly been attributed. So we've never been able to say protein A does causes the pain, protein B causes the numbness, etc. But we're actually part of a broader research council in Australia, which is focused on discovering cool stuff in nature, figuring out what it does, and then seeing how we can apply that to challenges that we are facing um, in the world right now. Unlike Sean's and Josh's job, the real catch is that the process to do this work, well, it takes a while. So it is a long time scale kind of thing. Well, and then I wonder like, but then do you have to somehow convert this into a synthetic process? Because, you know, so maybe there's something really promising that comes out of the platypus. And so do we really want to be out there <laughs> milking platypus venom <laughs> for, uh, for pharmaceuticals? Like, do you, how, how might you approach that sort of a dilemma or thinking about that? Oh, yeah, it definitely becomes synthetic. Um, getting one venom sample of even 50 microliters is a year-long process and incredibly, incredibly difficult. Luckily, chemistry has magical ways that's able to synthetically produce the protein and manufacture it synthetically, and then that would be developed into a pharmaceutical. I'm sorry, can you tell me about the year-long process? How is it a year to get that amount of venom from a platypus? Well, to be fair, we actually haven't even got the venom yet. Oh, wow. To get platypus venom is a science that has not been perfected by any means. 
A couple methods have been tried to get platypus venom, including like milking like snake venom or aspirating directly from the duct. With mixed success, there isn't really one perfect way to do it. So we have a lot of collaborators who are trying to get us a sample of platypus venom. Anyone who works with wildlife will soon realize that sample size becomes whatever I can get my hands on. And it's very opportunistic. It's basically if a platypus happens to die in the wild or in a zoo facility, we have ethics to try to get that venom gland sampled immediately. Um, But we're not going to go in and try to sample a gland of a living animal to try to preserve the species and try not to affect them too much. There is a reason why no one, hundreds of people haven't gone out and done this. And it comes down to the ability to get the samples. Hi, everyone. It's me. I am having a flare-up and it looks like a bad sunburn and it goes halfway up my leg. For Jackie, platypus venom would be just the tip of the medicinal iceberg. I've been on every pain medication you could ever think of. I've had to go through so much. But every new treatment that comes out, I am very hopeful that this could be the one thing that could help a majority of us that are just in so much pain, debilitating pain every day. So, Sean, uh, what's the result? Well, tried we did. So, uh, what did we just, uh, what did we catch? What's the first catch, Josh? So, unfortunately, not a platypus, but we've got it. Net site number three. I'm just catching up with you. It's net number four. Net number five. Is this the last net for the rounds? What's the status of platypus right now? They're not endangered, of course. Yeah, they should be. They should be? What are are uh, are your thoughts? Um, All the evidence we've got. First round is a wash. Round two. The problem is that the evidence is fairly sparse. All right, so Josh, can you quickly tell me what we're doing for this first net, round two? Uh, so we've turned up and basically the nets have collapsed with all of the leaves and... By the end of the night, the crew had to pull out three of the five nets. Um, so essentially we're just going to pack them up and take them out for the night. Heavy winds blew tons of branches and leaves down, which tangled into the nets, making them a would-be platypus death trap. Why? Why Why would that happen? Okay, so if a platypus, or any critter for that matter, gets trapped in one, and then the net went downstream, it would pull them down with it. I guess the, the animal welfare side is the top priority here. After the three nets, how are you, how are you feeling right now? <laughs> uh, a little depressed, I've got to say. I guess the bear's repeating. We're on round two, net four. Net five, by the last net for me. Any luck, Josh? Uh, no, very quiet night on the platypus front. All right. It was a good effort, but the point goes to the platypus. Our merry band was defeated. No platypus. It's driving off. I'm heading home, but they've got another check or two. They're down three nets. Two left. It's not looking great. Looks like it'll take some more time to snag a platypus and its venom for Adele. Are you hopeful that 
looking into the venom, we'll we'll come up with some like promising solutions to things like pain, alternative to current pharmaceuticals, anything like that? Yeah, I mean, with any discovery project, there's definitely the possibility for that. I know we have collaborators in Queensland who have found a protein in the funnel web spider venom, and that's currently getting developed into something to help stroke victims. So because these venoms particularly act on, you know, pain pathways to affect the victim of the envenomation, there is a high likelihood that it's going to have some ability to be modified into something that can be used as a therapeutic. But then again, that is a very long process to go from the raw material, from an animal figuring out what it does, and then to possibly applying it. Hello. So I'm about to get into the meditation part of my day because I'm really looking to just find balance with my pain. Hearing from Jackie, it's been a long journey. There's a person behind that diagnosis with hopes and dreams, and they really just want to live a good life. Are you going to get better? I get asked that question all the time. I want to say yes because I want the other person I'm speaking with to be happy. You form this mask to be around people. But at the same time, the reality of it is that many people with chronic conditions do not get better. They just do the best that they can on a day-to-day basis. Perfectly fine. I'm going to get started now. But even the longest and platypusless nights are speckled with dots of light. I will say going through all of this, it's truly a feeling that I don't want a lot of people to have. And so Beth is the president of the Erythromyalgia Association, and I sit on the board of directors. And I'm the youngest member. Beth and I met up about two years ago, and, and we went into our bags. We pulled out our fans. And we looked at each other and we just laughed so hard because for the first time ever, I did not have to explain to somebody why I'm pulling a fan out of my purse to put on my feet. And she didn't have to explain either, but it was just one of those moments of just belonging and finding a community, finding people that have been in your shoes has changed my life. It has truly changed my life and it's helped me feel just connected to people and to be able to share my day to day, to be able to understand what their journey was and what works for one person may not work for another, but there could be that one thing that like I share that helps somebody and now they're in less pain.
Today, we're Adele Gonzalez with the Australasian Wildlife Genomics Group and the University of Sydney, Jackie Gonzalez with the Erythromyalgia Association, and senior wildlife ecologist Josh Griffiths with Caesar Australia. Special thanks to Alex Levenko and Lisa Kirkland, as well as the many people who lent their voices to today's episode. You've been listening to Nice Genes a podcast brought to you by Genome British Columbia. If you like this episode, go check out some of our previous ones wherever you listen from. Share us with your friends and leave us a review. You can also DM the show on Twitter by going to at GenomeBC. And if you're listening with kiddos or you're a teacher looking to spice up your lessons, we have learn-along activity sheets added to the show description of each episode. Platypus might be an unsung mascot of Australia, but what happens when assumptions made by settlers set an iconic and loved species on the path to extinction? We have an estimated 1% to 3% left of our karaoke ecosystem. When the colonists got here, uh, they already had nice policies and procedures set up to either destroy or control those ecosystems. Join us next time when we take a walk through towering groves of trees to ask big questions about reconciliation and land stewardship. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode. We, uh, plot a push your way. Your way.